Okay, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, whatever you refer to yourself as, this is the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. And uh, my name is Ed Krasnick. I'm your co-host, along with my partner, Jennifer Kalari, who is an actual therapist, actually does this, helps people all over the world with all kinds of skills. And that's what we do here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. We skill it up. It's a skillet show. We look at mental health as a practice, but we're going to do some interesting things today because our guest, I've known this guy for a long time. You know, we've had his wife on the show. I've had, uh, I've had his son, uh, Oliver, on a different show. And we have done shows together that are the strangest, uh, most interesting, craziest shows ever. We'll, we'll talk about all of it, including his own mental health. And that's Jimmy Pardo, the host of Never Not Funny, one of the world's longest running podcasts, one of the best. And we're going to get into it. You know, the world is changing now again, and it's sort of opening up. People are starting to get their vaccines. People are stealing vaccines from all over the place. I don't mean stealing, but I mean, I know so many people who are getting vaccines and it's like they're not under over 65 they don't have any special health condition, and yet they're all getting vaccines. And I think what's happening is there's a lot of lying going on about pre-existing conditions, like, you know, whatever people can find. Or it seems to be stories like, you know, I live next to a fireman and this dose just dropped out of the sky and it was just in the road. And I thought, you know, I'll get a syringe and I'll see how it works. And and so people are getting vaccinated at great uh, great numbers. So it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time to launch uh, Vaccine Chasers, the musical, which I'll be producing off-Broadway about different ways that people chase after the vaccines. Uh, I feel like the Omega Man. I really do. I feel like I'm the last man on Earth, and I'll be the last man on Earth, but everyone else will get vaccinated. A few things we're going to do before we bring in our our expert, uh, Jennifer. Uh, just a few emotional shout outs. We always like to welcome people no matter what emotional state they're in. So here now are emotional shout outs. If you feel the term March Madness refers to your mental state, welcome. If while lining up for the vaccine, you start singing, I am not throwing away my shot from Hamilton, welcome. If you have a GoFundMe for building your emotional wall, welcome. If your boss has a teletherapist present during your Zoom meetings now, Welcome. If you're excited to see how Fox will tie in the COVID-19 theme to their hit show, The Masked Singer, welcome. If you're looking for a QAnonymous support group, welcome. If your horoscope reads, today is not a good day to be a mammal, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. Now, this is a new game that's sort of come out on the market. This is through the Milton Bradley very famous, of course, board games, family games. These are the Parental Stress Nursery Rhyme Mad Libs. This is a new thing, and it's great because you can fill in your own personal emotions, but but do it in a very rhymey way, in a very childlike way, and it, it's sort of very, it softens it, but it also lets you express. So here are a few Parental Stress Nursery Rhyme Mad Libs. Jack and Jill went up a hill. I wish I had the strength to go up a hill, but your father mentally drains me. <laughs> Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet because I wish everyone would get off my back for two seconds. 
Old King Cole was a merry old soul because he didn't have to deal with a house full of crap like I do every day. Every day. There you have an example of the parental stress nursery rhyme Mad Libs. Okay, too much coffee and maybe not enough coffee. I wanted to bring this up today, a couple things. The world is changing again. We're, we're going to re-enter the world. We're going to come out of isolation. And I think, I for one, am very nervous about it. I don't necessarily want to do it. I didn't love it before. And it's not that I want to be in quarantine uh, my whole life. But at the same time, I'm, I have apprehensions about it. That's one thing I thought we could talk about. And then the other thing I thought we could talk about, again, personally, confidence. You don't hear people talk about confidence in this day and age. Confidence, where does it come from? Is, is there a science to it? Is there a science of well-being uh, that has to do with confidence? And these are two things I wanted to talk to our friend from the North and the South about. I'm going to bring in Jennifer Kalari from ConnectedParenting.com, great organization where she teaches all kinds of skills, all kinds of support services, all kinds of media for parents, kids, families, self-parenting. Jennifer, what do you think about that? Are you experiencing that in your in your work, people who are concerned about re-entering the world? Absolutely. Yeah, especially the kids and, and young adults that I'm working with. And even people who weren't particularly anxious before about being outside in the outside world are nervous now. It's like we've lost some skills. You know, everyone has been online. It's funny, my anxious kids who had social anxiety, kind of what you said, they were pretty happy during the pandemic like yeah yeah they got to avoid a lot of things they didn't like so and anxiety is a bit of a beast so it it grows when you feed it so a lot of them are more nervous going back out into the world and then just people in general it's just it's been hard on everybody it's been really tough and just it's hard to even remember what life was like when you could go to the movies and be in a restaurant and not worry when somebody coughs so it's it's going to take some getting used to i think we'll be unpacking the mental health load on everyone uh, because of COVID for a long time, I think. And what do you tell people when they come in with this? You know, I, I mean, we've talked a lot about anxiety and a lot about skills for anxiety, but in terms of like re-entering the world and how to give yourself a break and how to sort of, you know, say it's all going to be okay, but it may be uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, one of the things about anxiety that's really important to understand is if you avoid things that you're uncomfortable with, then your brain thinks, you know, the, the anxious part of your brain, the fight flight center of your brain thinks it did a good thing. And the only reason you're alive is because you didn't go. So it's going to double down and make sure you really don't go the next time. So one of the most important things to understand about anxiety is that you have to push yourself a little bit. Even if you just go out for a little bit and then come back, you can't let the anxiety win. You kind of have to stake your claim and kind of chip away at it. That's a really, really important piece. It's, it's a very hungry emotion, anxiety. It likes to be fed. And it's self-preservatory. I mean, ultimately, it loves you. And anxiety gets a bad rap. Everyone thinks it's a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing. You need to have anxiety or you're not going to function. But you want your anxiety to work for you, not against you. And so understanding that you have to push yourself, even if it's just a little bit, you know, walk to the corner and come back or go sit in a cafe and come back or just slowly in little ways try to kind of reacclimatize yourself, that's usually the best thing to do. This sounds a little convoluted, but is there a way to talk to our emotions and have a two-way conversation? For, for example, with anxiety, could you actually either in your head or out loud or on a piece of paper actually talk to it? 
Absolutely. That's actually a narrative technique. And you can actually literally play the two roles out loud. It's better to do it out loud. You can get very confused in your own mind. Or actually sit in one chair and speak as yourself, sit in the other chair and speak as the anxiety. That's a pretty age-old technique. It feels a little crazy. It doesn't feel like the most normal thing to do, but it actually really helps clear your mind so you know which voice you're speaking to. A lot of people don't even recognize anxiety. They think it's their own, they think it's them. They don't even realize that it's the anxiety actually taking over and the anxiety actually whispering in their ear. So I could actually say to myself, I mean, it could say it in my head, but I could say, oh, there's anxiety again. Mm-hmm. Oh, hi, how you doing? Oh, I see you. I, I know you're trying to do a job right now. You're trying to protect me. You think I'm in danger. I'm actually fine. I'm actually just baking a cake now. <laughs> there's no need to, there's no need. I mean, I'm going to be okay. You do your thing. I get it. You're trying to protect me and we'll just move on here. You know, I know you're going to be there sometimes for me. I know. Absolutely. Even a very simple version of that where you just say, okay, that's anxiety. Thank you, anxiety. I know you're trying to help me. I know you're looking out for me, but I don't actually need you right now. This isn't actually a life-threatening situation. E- even just that. It, what that does is it actually engages the frontal lobe. The minute you start observing yourself, you're now using your frontal lobe, which is the part of the brain that actually regulates versus the midbrain, which is the part of the brain that's reacting to the world. Mm-hmm. And, and just creating a habit out of that is, can be really helpful. The other thing about going back into the world is you know, things aren't entirely opening up. They're starting to. But even just using your imagination, if you're a very nervous person being out in public, just imagine yourself on a bus, imagine yourself in a mall, imagine yourself with a crowd and breathing and calming down and actually handling it. A lot of it is rehearsal and the midbrain doesn't, it can't tell the difference between you imagining something, doing something and remembering something. So if you can actually rehearse that in your mind and go, hmm, I'm actually pretty calm while I'm doing this, that you can trick your midbrain into thinking you've already been doing it for a while. I feel like there's so much rehearsal that we could do, you know, in life just for all kinds of situations, you know, going to a party, not being too extreme about it. But if you have apprehensions, if you have feelings, if you have anxieties that come up, this is a way to actually play it out instead of hiding from it, suppressing it, eating about it or or, or trying to fill it up. Mm -hmm. You can can actually practice it, you know, and I'm going to talk to uh, our guest about it because... He's going to be playing the part of anxiety today. <laughs> um, he won an Academy. He won an OB, I think, nice. for his anxiety uh, <laughs> in his early years. Let's do that. Let's, let's bring in our guest. This guy has one of the best podcasts ever. It's one of the longest running, too. And that's never not funny. And that's Jimmy Pardo. And Jimmy... I would say that you have a familiarity with anxiety, and I'm just guessing it. Yeah, you know what? By the way, I was enjoying that uh, that so much that uh, I feel like me jumping in here is uh, going to ruin no. <laughs> the, the informative nature of the program, and here comes this dummy. <laughs> no. I, uh, you know what, Ed, and Jennifer, hi. Uh, I'm anxious when, you know, I used to drink. I've been sober now tw- going on 22 years, and- I used to be able to go to parties and enjoy all of that. And since I've sobered up, going to parties is the thing that gives me the most anxiety. Yeah. Trying to interact with people, which apparently I was great at when I was hammered. But now that I'm sober, I think I'm not great at it. That's really the only place where anxiety uh, comes. I'm sure there's other places, but that's the one that I can you know, uh, point yeah. to. Uh, what, what happens there, Jim? I mean, what's something that, that Jimmy could do? First of all, it's a really common one. Honestly, it really is. It's just a heightened state. There are many, many people who just, oh, you just get in your head and you overthink and, oh, why did I say that? And, oh, 
Like you just kind of get thinking too much. A, a really simple thing that you can do before you go to a party is for, first of all, just kind of breathe and calm yourself down and kind of center yourself and, and then realize that everyone else or many people there are probably feeling the same thing. And then actually do what I just said. Like imagine that you went to the party and imagine yourself 15 to 20 minutes after you've arrived at the party. Because usually once people are at the party, it's not as terrible. It's the, it's the first few minutes. It's the going there. Would that be true for you? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. That's anticipatory anxiety. I was going to say 100%. It's the, it's the drive there with my wife where I'm like, I don't know why we're doing this. I don't even know why we're doing this. And then yeah. sure enough, exactly what you said, uh, Jennifer, maybe 15, 20 minutes in, uh, hey, you know what? This is a good time. Yeah, not so bad. Well, you nailed it. It's exactly, it's the it's the buildup to it of like almost trying to find any excuse, like maybe they're going to cancel it. Maybe the, maybe the party's not going to happen. Right. But then again, once once you leave the car and you get in there a few minutes in, it's a nice time. So, but boy, yeah, this has been very helpful. Thank you for your time. <laughs> okay. All right. You're free to go. No further questions. <laughs> Think about that. That's a real whole world of anxiety. I mean, the anxiety is like the number one, you know, mental health issue right now, anxiety disorder, just j- different kinds of it. And one is anticipatory anxiety, and that's a very specific kind of thing where you're you're worried about what's coming and you're imagining what's coming. Of course, you're using your your brain is using your imagination and hijacking it to take over all the bad way. things yeah. that could happen. Exactly. We don't. We never think. Well, what about imagining the good things that can right. happen? Yeah. Is that a possibility? Well, and that that's why imagination is so important because we're always using our imagination. We're already we're always playing out the oh, and someone's going to walk away, or they're going to think I'm an idiot, or they're going to not laugh at my joke, or it's going to be awkward. And we're already using our imagination in the negative. So if you just use your imagination in the positive, what what actually happens is your brain thinks you've already been to the party, and it's okay. And so when you walk in, you're less anxious. Right? Social anxiety is like through the roof right now, though. Like, and a part mm-hmm. of it is the pandemic. A big part of it is social media because mm. everyone's on their phones, right? The second you're standing in line, you're waiting in the doctor's office, you don't have to chat with anybody. You stick, you stick your face in your phone. Oh, I'm anxious. I don't want people to think I'm alone. I don't want that person to talk to me. So I'm going to stare at my phone. So many people are losing that skill of just being able to chit chat and have a little conversation with someone, which are beautiful connectors. It's such a lovely way to kind of connect as human beings with other people. And we're losing that skill. I think that what happened years ago, you know, before we went into more of this kind of isolation, I guess marketing people call the cocooning, where people would want to, you know, what can we, what gadgets can we figure out so we can stay in our homes? We don't have to leave. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, which was in in 1897, Edison had just invented light, and and that was exciting for my family. But one of the things that we that we had is you couldn't hide from people. Your extended family was living near you or around you. Your street was, everybody was out in the street and you couldn't, like if you went to a party, the whole neighborhood would come out and they'd say, where are you going? It was just a different kind of growing up. And because of that, it wasn't such a big deal to be around people. You know, so I think that, you know, we really need community and we have it online, but now we're going to get back to, you know, having it in person. And these feelings and thoughts are going to come up. It's true. Well, you know what, Ed, even as you're talking, and, and it's interesting because even the way we connect with each other. So when I was a kid, I mean, there were grocery stores. I'm not that old, but you, it was pretty common to go to the, you went to one store to get your vegetables and you went to the post office and you went somewhere else to the drugstore. And in each of these places, I would go with my mother and the people would know us. Oh, how are you doing? How's your mother? I heard she had an operation. And there'd be this chit chat everywhere you went. And people, there was this sense that people knew each other. 
and they had an idea about each other. And and now what's shifted with with COVID or not is you go into Costco, you go into Walmart, you're going to these giant places, you don't even see the same people. Maybe in your coffee shop, you might see the same person, but we've kind of lost this beautiful, intricate little web that connects us all together, which makes us all feel quite isolated and alone, which increases exactly what he's talking about, which is, you know, that discomfort and that anticipatory anxiety when you're walking into new situations. And even when we were kids, our parents would make us say hi to people. Say hi to Mm -hmm. Mrs. So-and-so, right? Oh, you'd have to. You have to. Parents don't make their Mm -hmm. kids, many parents don't make their kids do that anymore. Oh, he's shy. Don't don't look at him. It's like, well, wait, that child needs to learn how to do that. That's a skill. Yeah, you're a human being. Jimmy, when you, when you were growing up, you grew up in Chicago? No. Uh, initially Chicago, then the suburbs of Chicago, yes. Did you have parents that, that, that did that? They forced you to say hello? They well, of forced course. You to say uh, thing, all of that stuff. You know, it's funny. Uh, the one that always pops into my mind is the uh, is the opposite of saying hello. It's saying goodbye. We, uh, My mom brought us, uh, my brother and I, to her work once, a place called the Millionaire's Club on the south, uh, suburbs, uh, south side of Chicago. It was an uh, exclusive restaurant, and I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> and uh, she brought us to work and then her boss came in and said this is my boss so and so blah, blah blah and he said nice to meet you and my brother and I both went yeah and walked away and my mom said you know when somebody says nice to meet you yeah uh, you say nice to meet you back that's yeah. that's how you, people communicate and that I, I must have been maybe eight or nine years old and obviously it stuck with me now that I'm you know 74 <laughs> and by, by the way I don't know why I made that joke we're on uh, audio and nobody could tell that I'm not 74 um <laughs> Uh, but yeah. that was the one. So, you know, very similar in that regard of, uh, I don't think, uh, to Jennifer's point, so often now you'll say, nice to meet you to a young person and they'll just go, okay. And the person will say exactly what Jennifer said. Oh, you know what? They're a little shy. It's like, really? But you still got to teach them how to yeah. be out in the world, right? It's an important skill. And the more kids avoid it, the worse they get at it. And that's why you see a lot of young people that really don't have those. You'll even see teenagers sitting around together and they're not even talking to each other. They're texting. Oh, it's unreal. They might even be texting each other. I don't know. <laughs> With each other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, my mother was notorious for, first of all, everybody knew her. She was one of those, the center of the world kind of personalities. And she talked to everybody and she engaged them in their personal life. So in other words, when you go into the bank, everybody would come out from behind the tellers and they'd say, oh my God, Shirley's here. Shirley, how are you doing? She'd say, what's going on with your daughter? You know, she had something coming up. Is she okay? And and they, they'd conf- you know, they confessed to her. It was confessional. And so I'm standing there as a kid with my, you know, with my parka on and I'm, I'm listening to, you know, people relate to my mom. And so I was like inadvertently kind of trained as to how to how to, how to host that. people. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what else is happening there that's so wonderful? And this is what we're missing, right? And it, and it actually does loop back to, to anxiety in a way. But when your mother did that, and people would come out and she'd say, how is your, how's your mother doing? How was her operation? And what's happening is serotonin and oxytocin, which are really powerful, what are known as here and now chemicals that are soothing and comforting, and they bathe your brain, and they reduce cortisol, which is the stress hormone, and they reduce adrenaline, like we're actually medicating each other in beautiful ways. And those little moments are just gems. They're golden. They're actually, they help us stay healthy and be happy. Mm. And Mm. and the more we miss out on those things, the more we're just getting dopamine. Dopamine and adrenaline is what you're getting every time. Oh, did I get a like? Oh, something new. I'm scrolling through the newsfeed. Boring, boring, boring. Ooh, that's exciting. Or, Or when kids are, you know, getting likes on things. 
you're getting a constant, constant hit of dopamine, and you're actually disturbing the really important biochemical flow that should be happening from connection. Hmm. Well, I really have nothing left to say because I'm—I uh, don't like it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't like what's going on now, Jimmy. Yeah, I have to say I, I don't know whether I imagined this or whether it really happened, but I was going to ask you about—you know—I know you're you're a big fan of classic stuff, classic TV things like that, game shows. We talked about this, that before. But where does Oliver, your son, where does he get his comedy sensibility from? And how do you, you know, in, in, in the way that you communicate with him, what's his sense of humor like? We're talking about our parents and how they took us in places and what we learned from them. What do you think he's learning from you? I think, you know, um, to, to answer your first uh, question first, I uh, comedically, I think he has a terrific sense of humor and he f- finds the shows himself. Like, Hey, like right now he's obsessed with Kirby enthusiasm. And while he's 13 and some of the topics may be a little more for an 18 year old, he's a pretty sharp kid and understands, you know, the difference between, uh, uh, what's okay and what's not for his age group. But you know what? I, it's almost like me growing up with my dad and he listened to the band Chicago and he liked, uh, Steve Martin and he liked, and my mom liked Richard Lewis and so those were all influences on me. So I kind of think, obviously, you know, what I like is kind of forming what he likes as well, comedically, uh, as well as musically. And as far as uh, the old TV shows go, I, I don't know if he has a love for those as much as his dad does. I've tried hard to get him to like uh, Mary Tyler Moore or the Dick Van Dyke show. And and he just does, I, I don't know if if the jokes are coming quick enough for him in those older shows. Hmm. So I, I'm, I'm not sure, Ed, uh, to be honest with you. I think just being around me and Danielle uh, and, and our sense of humor is, uh, is is what's molding him. And and luckily he likes great comedy. He likes great stand-up. And so I don't have to lie and pretend somebody who's horrible is good to make my son happy. That's awesome. Um, that takes have, away a lot of stress. Yeah, because a lot of really parents does, have to do that. Yeah. I mean, we both know comics that aren't great. And if he would have come to me and say, uh, hey, Don Simpson's terrific. And I go, yeah, yeah, nice guy. He's like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I'm lucky in that he he knows good from bad. So that's uh, so far so good there. That's a great thing. I think I saw something online, though, where he had done like a diorama of Mary Tyler Moore show or something for Danielle. He did a diorama of um, The Office and of The Simpsons. And he made me for for Christmas last year. He made me a uh, a Mary Tyler Moore action figure, <laughs> and it is uh, it, he's a it, genius. It, it's so great that people have commissioned him. He just did uh, he just did Albert Brooks and Julie Haggerty and Bruno Kirby from uh, Modern Romance. Somebody commissioned him to make the action figures of those three people. That's oh, insane, that's awesome. isn't that insane? And I'll tell you what, I I know him as dad, but I look at it and go, that's really great. This is really good. <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, somebody commissioned him after seeing the office diorama. Somebody commissioned him to do a MASH diorama. So he uh, made a whole thing with MASH, uh, studying the photographs, watching the show a little bit, and then creating it. And again, I know I'm his dad, but it's like, this is decent. This is good. Amazing. I'm fascinated with that kind of art. The The idea that he could take this classic thing and make it new with an action figure. That's actually a whole world, <laughs> which could be so interesting. Like what's his name? Christopher Guest made a joke of it. I think it's it, maybe it's in, yeah, it's got to be in Waiting for Guffman, maybe or Best in Show at the end with those outtakes where he says, "I have the My Dinner with Andre action figures," uh-huh. <laughs> and he says, "He says, oh, you know, I like dinner. Yeah, I like dinner. You know." And then and they're like, they're talking, and then the uh, remains of the day lunchbox, I think, was a big one with uh, with Chris Guest. 
But if you think about it, like action figures of like classic comedy, I would never think modern romance is, first of all, I used to go see it all the time. It's the worst date movie you can ever go to. And I've done it as a date movie, which is ridiculous. The fact that they want him to do that one is insane. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, yeah. and again, it's, it's it's really good. And um, uh, if, wow. if Christopher Guest wants those dinner with Andre, uh, he should commission my son to do them. My son, <laughs> he doesn't charge a lot of money either. He just uh, he just does it. Awesome. He should do that. That's it's amazing. Crazy. Oliver's a very stable, and I don't know him that well, but this is just what I picked up from him from seeing him. He's he's kind of a stabilizing force. Would you say that? I would, but you know what? What Jennifer was talking about earlier, uh, I actually it was wonderful to listen to what she had to say about anxiety and and getting back into the real world and so on. Because he is uh, of the three of us in the house, he's the most stressed out about it. He's the most stressed out about should we be going to a restaurant? And we, by the way, we're yeah. not yet, but we will be. But we're, and we're talking about it and building up to him going back to school, us going back to restaurants, maybe going back to Chicago to visit my my dad. Of the three of us, he's the one that's like, should we really be doing that? And and he shuts down. Yeah. And, um, you know, we have to tell him, well, we're not doing it tomorrow. We're, we're talking about maybe, you know, going back, you're going to go back to school at, at May or go visit grandpa in August. And that seems to ease him for the moment. But then it comes right back up the next day where kids are talking about going back to school. What are we doing? We can't go to school. It's not safe. It's not safe. It's not safe. Yeah. And it's a big transition. It really yeah. is. And so some kids are worried about that. They're worried about you know, is it safe? Can we go? And other kids are just like, I don't know how to do that anymore. So there, there are kids around the country and certain kids in, in Canada too, that have gone back to school recently. And what the teachers and administrators are saying is the kids that are coming back are not the kids who left. Like they're all more mm-hmm. anxious. They're all, and they're having trouble focusing because they've been online and they can look at their phone every five seconds and get, mm-hmm. a, go and get a snack and they can go to the bathroom and like, they're having trouble when they get back into class focusing. I mean, most of them will settle and, and Oliver will too. It's just it, transitions are tough on kids. And this is a big one. This is a huge one. Yeah. What do they say to him? I mean, is there, is there a way to, uh, to frame it uh, other than, you know, than what they're saying? Or is there, is there a way to, to sort of bring it down and, and, and show him that he can do that for himself too? Yeah. Well, and I think what you're doing is just things that are happening right now, but get, you know, get your brain kind of mentally prepared and then you can try and do like a few more things that you wouldn't do before, even just for a few minutes, whether, I don't know, it could be anything going to a grocery store or something, just kind of acclimatizing back again. Like I even notice when I watch TV and I see a bunch of people in a restaurant, my first instinct is like, oh, all those people are together. And like, oh, it's, <laughs> it's on TV. Like it's so ingrained now in our thinking that we, we really have to, it's gone deeply into the psych, into the psyche of kids and, and teenagers for sure. It's been, I, I honestly think it's been the toughest on them. It's been hard on on adults, but it's literally flipped children's lives upside down. Mm. Everything they like to do, clubs and teams and birthday parties and chills and you know, school plays, like all of it has just been gone for over a year. And that's mm. that's a big, big thing for them. It really is. You know, Jennifer, it's funny that you mentioned uh, watching TV with the mask and stuff. My, uh, Oliver stopped watching Superstore because they would only wear the mask on the sales floor, but not in the stock room. Oh, and, and he's like, and he's like, there, there's still COVID there. There could still be COVID there. And so he's like, I'm out. I'm out. I can't watch it. I'm like, oh. I'm like Daddy, you know, you gotta, it's television. You pretend that they're doing the right thing. Right. Right. It's so hard, but that's how deeply ingrained it is now. Yeah. I mean, even things like hugging people, like teenagers love to hug each other and guys, they like wrestle each other and 
And none of that can happen. Even when they're back at school, they can't do that, right? So, I mean, girls love to go, oh my God, and run up and like hug each other. And they can't do any of that stuff. So even just kind of normal touch and like all of that stuff, they almost have to relearn in some ways. And they go, it, it, everyone's going to be okay, but it, there, there'll be a bit of unpacking, I think, the impact that this has had on, on young people for sure. Why isn't Disney doing Emotionally Frozen Part 2? <laughs> <laughs> Well, am I alone? Yes, I am alone. Uh, Jimmy, you know, I mean, this is it, the roles that you play in your family. Is it is it like do you and Danielle share equally? Would you say the I don't imagine that you have to set a lot of limits with uh, with Oliver. But when that has to happen, who does it come from? Boy, I got to be honest with you. I, I, I know I sound like this dad that's uh, not living in reality, that his kid's perfect. But we really haven't had to set a lot of limits. There haven't been much. The only one ever was, you're watching too much TV. We're going to limit your TV. He pouted for maybe a day and a half, and then now takes care of it all of himself. It got a little more lax during pandemic, obviously, that, you know, you, you got to entertain yourself somehow for crying out loud. You can't just read constantly. Ed, I don't even know how to answer your question because he's, he's not a kid that makes us set limits, luckily. Yeah. Listen, there are kids who are just, and it's just their temperament. They just self-regulate pretty well. They just do. And then they have other issues. Like he gets all nervous about whether they're wearing masks in the back. Right. right? So so there are different things that kids have to struggle with. I mean, that's lovely. That makes parenting quite easy. Um, And then there's some kids who are literally just born to push limits. Like from the minute they open their eyes, it's like, no, not now in a minute. Why? And that's a whole other type of parenting. But he sounds like a great kid, and that's amazing. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Again, we're very lucky. He's he's a, a nice young man, and uh, as I always say, I always give Danielle all the credit, and uh, I'm doing the best I can as a dad, just trying to figure it all out. Wow. I you know I really have nowhere to go at this point. No, I'm kidding. I I do have places to go. We look for the dysfunction, Jimmy. We pick and we get at it. And we'll find it. Believe me, I'm, I'm the emotional police. I'll find it. You strike me as a pretty organized person. What happens when you, uh, when you feel a little bit out of control or things like that? How does that manifest itself? The story that comes to mind the most is the one that when Danielle and I took our honeymoon uh, back in uh, 2004. And, I, you know, I, I've been a road comic or I was since uh, 1989. You know, my schedule would be get the stuff in the car, drive to the gig, get out of the car, get in the hotel, unpack, maybe take a nap, maybe take a shower, get to the club, do the show, and then so on and so forth. And so I had never, I hadn't taken a vacation since I was a kid. So when Danielle and I flew to Italy for our honeymoon, we got to Italy and I literally froze and locked up and I didn't know what to do. And because it was like, once I unpacked, okay, so that part of it was I got to the quote unquote, I got to the gig. I unpacked my suitcase and then I'm, and Danielle's like, so what are we going to do today? And my brain just frazzled and didn't know what to do. Like, well, this is, this would be nap time. Why are we not napping? I should be getting ready for a show. What are we doing? And, and I, Danielle's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I, it, it's not organized for me. I don't like what's happening right now. And it took a few minutes, not even a few minutes, maybe it took an hour or so. And then she's like, well, well, let's go to dinner. Maybe that'll start the process of knowing how to live like a human being. And it did. And then the rest of the vacation was fantastic. But that first few hours, I did not know what to do with quote unquote free time. Yeah. I totally relate to that. I, I went to Italy by myself and it was the best time I ever had really. And, and I had no plans. There were no plans. So I could go wherever I wanted to go, do whatever I wanted to do. And I ended up, I think, of the first day falling asleep 
in the town square in a little town called Verena, which is near Milan on, on Lake Como. And I fell asleep in a chair like Marlon Brando and The Godfather. <laughs> I actually just keeled over huh? because I was exhausted from like not knowing what to do. Of course, it was the most amazing right. place ever. You know, you're, you're seeing those kind of things. But we don't know what to do. And those kinds of things, you know, they may they may come up and it's it's okay. Whatever it is, it's gonna be okay. And it's also gonna be temporary. A lot of the time with the with these things, the last thing you say to yourself is this is temporary. Yeah. It's it feels like it's mm. permanent. It's actually temporary. Everything's temporary. These are easy things to say and not easy to do always, right, Jennifer? It's true. Well, and listen, we adapted to lockdown, which was in the beginning quite a nightmare for a lot of people. And then people kind of found their groove, then they lost it again, and then they found it again. So Mm. people will adapt, kids will too, to whatever the next phase of normal (laughs) looks like. Humans are very adaptive. They are. We figure it out. It's been really neat to watch how businesses and people, how people pivot and just figure out other solutions for things. And it's just kind of neat. We're always busy looking at the negative, but there's some really incredible things that human beings can do when you change the rules. Right, and the brain gets very kind of stuck and can't imagine another way to do things, like like when you got to Italy. But as soon as you shift gears, you make all these new discoveries about yourself and experiences. And we tend to focus in such a negative way, but there's there are good things happening all the time for us mm-hmm. and and for our kids. Jimmy, you've been you've been doing comedy for such a long time and also hosting for such a long time. You love it, obviously, and you enjoy it, obviously. You know, do you still get nervous? During it, it do, do things come up like this, or you just know automatically so well how to do these things that you never get lost, you never worry about it? It's It's been a long time since I've been nervous doing stand-up. It, it, things got to be really going out of control to get nervous. It's what we do, you know? So I, do, I, I still get a little nervous uh, for a TV appearance or something like that because it's not the norm. For me, anyway, it's not you know the, it's not as normal as going on stage as a stand up in a in a club. Uh, so I still get that uh, you know those little butterflies. Uh, you know, maybe more excitement than nervous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a club setting or doing any sort of set, nah, that that's just it's what we do. Doing never not funny. You've been doing it how long now? Since two thousand, coming up on our fifteenth anniversary. Wow. Jesus. So doing that for fifteen years. I mean, from where you started when when nobody knew what what this medium was even. To now, how has it changed, and what have you, you know, what have you learned? Well, you know, when it started, I would ask people to come on the show, and they would say, "What do you mean we're pretending to be on radio?" And I mean, literally, that would be the response. People didn't know what it was. It felt like some cable access radio show, and people would come and play along as a guest. And then podcasting started to, you know, become a little more popular. Now, of course, you know, every human being in the world has a podcast. Uh, so now, when I say, "Do you want to come on to be a guest?" They're like, "I can't. I got forty-five others to do that day." What I learned is it's a great way for people to express themselves. And, and, and so many people will say, but how do I get an audience? How do people listen? It's like, that's the beauty of these things. You know, Conan O'Brien's got, you know, and Joe Rogan have 49 million people listening. And some people have four people listening. And if those four people like it, then keep doing it. Enjoy it. Do it to have fun. Do it to enjoy it. And if, if it clicks, great. And if it doesn't, so what? At least you're getting out your, your, your thoughts and your expressions and enjoy yourself. Yeah, that's really a good that's a good amazing. perspective on it. Because what I find is that there is something for everybody. People really yes. do relate to certain things. And that's why there's so many niche, you know, things that I haven't heard about, but there are people listening to it and there are people who are interesting doing it, you know, talented people doing it. The one thing 
that I haven't listened to a lot of. I mean, how do, how do game shows go over on? Um, well, you know, uh, you, you know, know what I, podcasting. I'll only jump in and say this. You know, we we did a, uh, a spinoff of Never Not Funny. Uh, we did I, I forget maybe sixteen to twenty episodes of a show called Playing Games with Jimmy Pardo, and that was a game show where you know we had three contestants on the telephone. We had a celebrity uh, guest in the studio, and you know what? It worked really well. It was one of those things where it's like, here's the one that's going to, this is going to, this is going to blow the world away. Here it comes. Pardo's game show on a podcast. And the people that listened loved it. And the people that didn't uh, missed out, but it worked very well to long windedly answer your question. And you have say, do you have game segments and stuff like that that you do in uh, never not? Yeah, we got stupid little games that we play uh, really, especially during the pandemic of just (laughs) because nobody's doing anything. You know, the stupid games are just uh, (laughs) reasons to have conversation. And hopefully that one of the things that happens in that game goes, oh, you know what? Speaking of ghosts, and then you talk about ghosts for seven minutes. They work. And then you know, as the listener, I know I am when I listen to a podcast, if somebody's playing a game, you know, I play along on my walk and it's uh, it kills the time and it's fun. Well, I'm yeah. glad that we brought it up because I just have a very quick thing. This is a mental health uh, game show that I'm trying out and there are quizzes about, uh, you know, mental health. It sounds exciting. I know people that are listening are saying, geez, what? when can I see that? How do I get it? Uh, can I get it now? And the answer is yes. Jimmy, just a quick, just three questions. Yes. And and really, and Jennifer, you'll re- relate to this because it's really, you know, this is the science of well-being here. This is mental health. I'll ask you just three multiple choice. So the hormone most associated with stress is A, serotonin, B, cortisol, C, old spice. I can rule out C. Um, <laughs> Don't be so sure. You know what? I think Jennifer just said it, and I don't know the answer. I'm going to go with B. Yes, you would be correct. Cortisol. Uh-huh. Jennifer, cortisol. How, how about that? Yes. Cortisol. So, yes, cortisol is a stress hormone. It's, it gives you that feeling of your heart racing, your stomach turning. It's responsible for all the kind of negative aspects of anxiety that we feel. Does it do anything good for us? Oh, well, yeah. It saves our life when we need it, right? If a bookshelf is falling on us and cortisol spikes and we get out of the way. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's, in char- it's fight or flight. We're all here because cortisol has saved us at some point or other. What we don't want is we don't want chronic high levels of cortisol all the time. That's where you start getting you know, some negative health effects and you start to not feel so well. But to know that oxytocin and serotonin, those are the chemicals you get from snuggles and good friends and, and even watching a movie together and just being with each other, even playing board games talking with a good friend. That's what flowed in the bank when your mom went in and chatted with everybody. That is cortisol inhibitor. So that actually blocks cortisol. We said it before, and I forgot my, you know, I lost my train of thought because I was so excited by the cortisol. But Jimmy said it before about, you know, you're actually excited. Mm-hmm. You're, it's, a, it's a way, like if you talk to your, your stress level and you actually address it and you say, oh, I'm preparing to go on stage. This is exciting. Mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it changes your relationship to stress in your body. If you put someone in an MRI who is excited or anxious, the brain is going to look the same. It's identical. The mm. only difference is context. So the next time you go to a party, you can also say, I'm not nervous, I'm excited. Tell your brain you're excited. What if I don't want to go to that party, Jennifer? Then don't go. That's what I oh, would right. Well, that's another <laughs> option, I guess. Yeah, I guess that, I, just, I assume that's just not on the table. All right, very good. That makes sense. If your wife wants to go and you have to go, then I mean, there's going to be decisions you have to make and you don't want to let anxiety win all the time. But why don't you say, I'm going to go for a little bit and then I'm going to leave if it's boring, right? May, or, or I'm uncomfortable, or I'm going to mm. go and take a break and then I'm going to come back. Just be aware 
that if you run from things where your cortisol is spiking, where anxiety is rising, you're just training your anxiety to, to actually make you run away sooner the next time. Yeah, yeah. Right? That, that's the sneaky thing about anxiety. If you run from things, Jennifer, can you count those steps on your pedometer? <laughs> you can. Yes. Okay, yes. good. I just want to know if there was a benefit to it, if you can count them. I would continue with this with this game, but I'm not going to continue, Jimmy, because I, before we leave, we're leaving a minute here. But before we wrap up, I have to say, Jimmy and I have worked together on two of the most insane, unique shows that have ever been done. And they're very unusual. And I just have to mention them. One is called The Pet Shop with Andy Kindler. And, and I'm going back many, many years. This is a show, a talk show, a talk variety show with celebrities and their pets. And honest to God, it was a, an amazing show. But Jimmy was working it. Do you remember this? I was the uh, warm-up act for the first two days of taping. And then I was asked not to return. <laughs> And I will say this, and, and this plays into this this very conversation here today. I thought it was okay, but I was stressed out, you know, because it was two days shooting five shows a day, and I was stressed out. And then when I was offered another warm up gig many years later, I so remembered my experience there. And now you and Andy and, and people were great, but the experience of doing the warm up was so horrible that I then I stressed myself so much that I think I gave myself Bell's palsy, like so that I didn't have to take the gig. <laughs> and then when I was offered the gig to work uh, on the tonight show with Conan O'Brien, when they offered me to do the warm up job, I turned it down because of my experience at the pet shop. I was so stressed out about, I, I can't do that. I was so stressed out every day. I had a knot in my stomach going to work every day. I don't want to do it. I actually went the other way and went, but what if it's great? But what if it's great? And then I took it and I worked for Conan for seven years. So there you go. it worked out. You can't always trust anxiety, right? You can't always trust it. It's not the, it's not the smartest part of your brain. Mm -hmm. It's just in charge of keeping you safe. But, if, but it's not always right. It's not always right. But then the other thing is that is a really hard, you know, warm up is a That's very true. specific job and it's a very specific kind of job. And it's not like stand up. It it's, is not. It's, it's not at all like stand up. It's it's a it's a crowd control, public speaking, game playing, hosting hybrid where you actually have to know you you learn how to do it. It has nothing to do with being funny. It has well, you know. Luckily, at the at the Tonight Show, we, and then also with Conan, it it did. It was a, that was a different uh, vibe. But yes, the other side of it at that, and it was at the Pet Shop. Where it wasn't about being funny. It's like, it's about being a cheerleader and almost being like a school principal where you got to keep everybody focused and in line. The funny thing that happened at, the, at that show was Dave Foley, the, uh, the great uh, from the kids in the hall, he came on with his pet ferret and his segment, the audience stared at him. They didn't enjoy him. And then he came over to me in the commercial break and said, I'm glad I'm not the only person they hate in this room. That's how bad I was doing. <laughs> Oh, no. Yeah, perfect. No, that was an impossible job. You know, it, it it's hard to know a no win situation, but there are some. Yeah. No matter what you tell yourself, like that was a no win situation for you. Just that environment was just a no win mm -hmm. situation for you. But the other one that we did that was actually really funny but crazy too was a show called Ben's Law. Mm -hmm. Now Ben's Law was Ben Stein from Win Ben Stein's Money. Ben Stein from Fer Ferris Bueller. He was doing a court show, a comedy court show, but he was trying like real cases, like morality court. And he was he was sort of like a judge. And his sidekick was Craig Robinson, who played as his bailiff, but with a keyboard. Uh -huh. 
and Jimmy was Doug Llewellyn. Jimmy was like the people's court reporter who would talk to the people who were doing the case, you know, after they had their trial. And I thought it was a very funny idea. Again, not not warm up. It was a joy. And and I just remember like that you and I would come up with the dumbest questions to ask the people that had just quote unquote been on, on trial. And we would just I would just ask them questions to make us laugh. And yes. I remember we laughed for two straight days. I don't know if they used a single second of the footage that I did, um, <laughs> but like I, it, it was a ball. I I, I would just I, I can't remember any of the stupid questions I would ask them. But it would it would be, very rarely would they have to do with the case. I would ask uh, other things, and it was a blast. And I was like, I hope this show gets picked up because I I want to laugh like this every single day for six months. I know it's the best kind of the best kind of stuff you could do when you can do that stuff that yes. you know makes you crazy. We're going to do this again. I'm going to bring up other uncomfortable things for you. I'll have a list of them. It'll be like a menu. You can read it before you come on. No, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I know you're you're busy, and uh, it's a pleasure. I uh, I just I do have to run though. I have an audition today for uh, a small role in the uh, Vaccine Stealers. They're doing it off. <laughs> very very excited about it. That is a good project. Uh, oh, I, I good would imagine. Good luck with that. And I really hope you get it because there's a sequel. You have to get a second shot. Ah. It's called The Vaccine Stealers, The Second Shot. And Love that's it. already being prepped. Jennifer, I thank you so much for, uh, for helping us again. Jennifer actually helps people uh, all over the world, and we're lucky to have her. And you can find out so much more uh, on ConnectedParenting.com. You can find media. You can find podcasts. You can find books, many books that she's written. And it's all about parenting. It's all about self-parenting, all about families and other kinds of supports that you that are very unique to her. So check out ConnectedParenting.com. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find show notes and other things on MakeLightMedia.com, make light, one word, media.com. And Jimmy, a pleasure. And we'll do it again. Thank you for having me. Nice to uh, chat with you. Thank you, Jimmy. Say hi to Danielle and to Oliver. Will do. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick. Thanks for listening to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. We will see you next time.